Hey, Jim, who are we going to talk to? I mean, who's coming up? Well, Tracy, way to dive right in. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Little Things First, everybody. We're going to be talking to Karen Chenoweth today. Do you recognize that name? Yes, I love Karen. She's been around and I love her writing. Yeah, it was one of our first interviews when we first started the podcast. And um, at the time, she'd written, I don't know, four or five books. I'm not sure exactly. I lost count. Yeah. She had a newer one at that time. And now she has a new, even newer book coming out, but we'll have to ask her when it comes out because I'm not sure, but it's about district okay. uh, leadership. So District leadership. Great. Actually, you know, that's it. really interesting because I know, at least in our state, that's something that we've been looking at is trying to help support change, right, and improvement by looking at that district level support system across the state. So I think this will be really interesting conversation. Right. It's hard for individual schools to do all that work and for it maybe not to be sustainable because districts don't have what they need to support that ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting to hear what she has to say. So uh, here is Karen. Let's let her in. Uh, Hi, Karen. It's nice to talk I to you again. I don't think I'm on my microphone. It works for us. Whatever's working is working. Really? Yeah, really. Can you hear us? How about that? Can you that hear works. that now? That works too. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That works for me too. <laughs> All right. So, how are you guys? We're we're great, and we are very excited to hear about your new book that's coming out. Jim was just letting me know that he's been rebuffed. He's not been able to actually purchase it yet. Well, uh, you he's, can pre you can pre-order it, but it's yeah, I mean, like it's not being shipped to you as we speak yet. Right. So you're on hold. Well, I think the official publication date is May 25th, but I, I think they'll have books in sometime soon. So I don't know when they'll actually start shipping. Exactly. Nice. But okay. thank you for ordering it. That's yes. very exciting. We <laughs> got one. <laughs> so yeah, so tell us, this is your, what we couldn't remember. Is this your fifth book or sixth book? Ninth book. So uh, it's the fifth that I have, it's, it's the fifth that I've authored in some way. One of those books I co-authored with uh, Christina Theokas, but uh, the other books I, I was the uh, single author on. That's great. Nice. So what's the difference between this one? What does this add to the um, wealth of knowledge that you've already put out there? So one of the, so I've been, as you know, I've been going to schools for a long time trying to identify what high-performing, rapidly improving schools that serve uh, uh, children of color and children from low-income backgrounds, what, they're, what they do differently. Yeah. And um, over the years, one of the criticisms has been of, of my work has been, well, you know, it was a good school for a little while, but it didn't keep as a good school, it Didn't stick. deteriorated. So, so how real was that goodness uh, that you found? It probably wasn't all that great. And so over the years, that has happened a few times that the schools have deteriorated over time. And so one of the things that I have taken from that is that schools are not perpetual motion machines. You don't set them in train and then just kind of watch them go. 
Uh, there is no such thing as a perpetual motion machine, and uh, that's true of schools as well. They need continual, high-quality, effective leadership. And what, ha what I have seen is that districts have undermined the, uh, the success of schools. So a principal will come in or a couple of principals and they will get that school in tremendous shape and leave it thinking, okay, I've got it on track. I've got a couple of people who will you know, lead it through the transition. But, but the district comes in and says, well, you know, we've got this assistant principal over here. She's put her time in. She deserves a school. That person comes in and dismantles everything, all the systems that had made it so, such a powerful school. The new principal doesn't understand that, doesn't understand the culture, does, doesn't understand the systems. And, you know, I have watched this with great concern the the previous principals have been you know i've i've spent a lot of time on phone, on the phone with principals who are watching their pride and joy yeah. deteriorate before their eyes and you know it's very painful so i i finally decided even though i think i still think the key to effective schools is the school principal the school leader Districts have an enormous role to play because they choose the school leader and they set the culture and the client, you know, they set the culture within which the principal operates. Um, and so I wanted to, I wanted to broaden the lens past schools, past in individual schools and look at districts. But of course, the problem with districts is how do you choose the districts? Like, how do you even find a district? There are more than 13,000 districts. Um, and just as I was kind of facing this issue of how I was going to find district, identify districts to study, Sean Reardon at Stanford University, the, he's the professor of poverty and opportunity at Stanford University. I think that's the right name. He's, I, I, what I call him is the uh, intellectual successor of James Coleman. You know, he is, he is putting together these enormous data sets that uh, track individual schools, but also districts. And he started with districts and he's now, uh, he's now added to his data uh, individual schools, but he started with districts and I was like, yay, somebody's done this. He put every district, in, almost every district in the country on a common scale of socioeconomics of the students in the school district. And he, he worked with US census data to do this and by achievement. And of course, this is enormously complex work yeah. that he and his you know, team did. Um, because one of the reasons being that, uh, you know, the kids in Maryland don't take the same tests as the kids in Illinois. And, you know, so like, how do you equate them? And yeah. he, he did that work through the National Assessment of Educational Progress. So he equated everything in there. Uh, I am not expert enough to really understand all the mathematics of what he did. Uh, 
similarly, I don't understand how a car really works other than <laughs> a vague thing, but I can drive it, right? So I can drive his data to, to a certain extent. So I used his data. I had to supplement his work with a lot of examination of state uh, report cards and other, you know, all, every source of data I could find. But I came up with a handful of districts that I thought were really interesting and worth studying. And then I, I went and did some podcasts about them. Uh, it's the first two seasons of Extraordinary Districts. And they're sort of very deeply reported, a uh, lot of on the ground uh, audio from principals, superintendents, students, teachers, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And then uh, I used that as the basis for this book, which is Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement. So what are some of the little things that you found that districts that yeah. succeed implement? And maybe so, they're not such little things, but... Well, you know, it depends on your definition. I think I think they meet the, I think at least some of it meets the definition, your definition of uh, little things, as in not big, huge initiatives, programs, uh, you know, things that take a lot of money. Um, at the core, and this sounds, this may sound a little too simplistic, but I, I think it gets to it. Um, at the core, they, set up the systems that allow teachers, principals, and even superintendents to ask what I call the most powerful question in education, which is, your kids are doing better than mine, what are you doing? And in order to ask that question, a lot of things have to be in place, actually. Um, it sounds like an easy enough question, but in order to ask it, you have to have a common understanding of what kids need to know and more or less how to assess it, more or less assess at the same time, and then time in order to study that the, the subsequent data and really think about it. So at a, at a classroom level, so let's, let's take an ordinary elementary school where the third grade is supposed to learn multiplication, say. And the teachers have kind of figured out, okay, by let's say March, they need to be able to multiply three digits by three digits, or whatever they decide. You know, I'm, I'm not positive that's the exact right thing to do, but by March, they should know this. And they, and they say, well, this is how we'll assess it. We'll give five problems and we'll, um, we'll see if the kids can do it. And then they give that quiz more or less at the same time. You don't want one doing it in March and another in June, yeah. more or less at the same time. They give the same assessment. And then they sit down and they go, well, how did your kids do? Well, only 20% of my kids were able to do it, but 80% of your kids were able to do it. So what did you do? Can I come watch you? Can you come watch me and see what I'm like, see what, uh, 
what things I'm like not explaining really well enough. Uh, how am I confusing the kids? Um, can I bring your, my kids to your classroom and, and we can figure out something together. There are a lot of ways, once you've exposed expertise, there are a lot of ways to learn from it, but you have to be able to expose it. And in order to do that, you need all those things that I mentioned, you know, the assessments, the common understanding of what kids will learn more or less when. You also need a culture of trust, yeah. which is hugely important uh, within education because for the standard thought is, if my kids didn't do all that well, there must be something wrong with me, right? There must be something wrong with my teaching. When that's like, my kids aren't doing very well on the third grade multiplication, but man, they've got the comma used down, right? So it's like, we all have different expertises and different teachers have different expertises. We, we have to get over the idea that every teacher knows everything it's impossible. Only by, uh, only by uh, marshalling the full powers of the school and marshalling the full you know, expertise of everyone in the school and the district can you really get to the point where you're actually improving. And this is true at a, at a classroom level. It's also true at a school level so that it, Principals can look at their reading, you know, their overall reading scores, or their, let's say their third grade reading scores and go, look, you know, over, over there in another school in the district, they're doing much better. Uh, so what are they doing? I have to go and look, I have to go talk to the other principal, you know, how are they, um, are they using a different reading program? Are they using a different set of curricular materials? Are they organizing time differently? It's really only in that kind of collaboration that real improvement can happen at a systemic level. You can get a classroom to improve in an isolated way. You can get a school to improve in an isolated way. You can even get a district to improve in an isolated way. But if we really want all uh, schools and all districts to improve, we have to have those conversations, at least that's what I think. That's what I have observed um, in these high-performing and high, um, high-performing and rapidly improving schools and districts. And um, I haven't seen anything to make me think that's wrong. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like to me that from from the person who is in the place where we aren't quite up to the same level as others, there's got to be an openness and sort of a self you know, respect or uh, I feel good enough about myself that I can actually kind of admit it and say, what are you doing? So there's also another level of openness that has to be there um, so that they can kind of extend and look. So you touched on this just briefly, but I, I don't think it's true. I was going to ask you if you felt that there was some consistency about curriculum across a district that mattered or not, or if the district sort of had an influence about like even scheduling or, you know, any of those other factors. I, I think from listening to, you, no, that's not really been true, but I'm curious if you noticed any patterns that way. So, you know, I'm, I'm going from five districts basically yeah. um yeah. and so i don't want to make any huge general statements um that uh might not 
be accurate for other districts. But um, I think what one of the things that happens is they become more coherent about curriculum over time. Sure. They may not start out with a common curriculum. For example, one of the uh, one of the districts that I profile is Chicago, and uh, that's the biggest district. It's the fourth biggest district in the country. So, you know, and I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear it's improving. It's not, it's not what you would call high performing yet, but it is improving and has been improving for decades. It doesn't yet have a fully common curriculum, but over time, teachers, principals, and, you know, uh, district administrators have recognized that not having a common curriculum is actually harmful. Yeah. Uh, it's harmful, particularly for kids who move a lot, which, uh -huh. uh, which is true of a lot of kids who grow up in low-income uh, homes. They're often yeah. looking for somewhat, you know, better or cheaper housing, and so they move a lot. And for a kid to go from one school with one curriculum to another school with another, you know, over and over, that is incredibly disruptive. And I think, I think Chicago has found that and they are working toward having a more common curriculum, uh, more common ways of organizing time and uh, staff hiring. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's enormous district. Mm -hmm. When you get to smaller districts, they tend to have much more, uh, you know, coherent common mm -hmm. curriculum. Uh, one of the most, uh, well, there, I love them all, right? They're all they're all wonderful districts. But Seaford, uh, Delaware, is very rapidly improving. It's a it's a rural district with two little town, well, one little town and one slightly bigger town. And it was one of the lowest performing districts in the state. It has been improving for several years. Every group of students is improving. African-American students are improving the fastest, uh, along with uh, Latino students, English language learning students, and uh, uh, students with disabilities. They're all moving faster than the white middle class kids. Um, but the white middle class kids are moving also. Like, so everybody's moving and the kids who are farther behind are moving fastest. Nice. That's exactly what you want to see, right? That's how we get to where we want to go. Um, they have brought in a reading curriculum that I think is, you know, uh, seems like it's very helpful. And it's one reading curriculum for the whole district. It's not a big district. It's four elementary schools, a middle school and a high school. But they're all using the same one. And it seems to be being helpful. I'm, I'm always nervous about talking about programs as doing something. Programs yeah. don't do anything. Yeah. It's the people, right? But this seems to be helping the people do something. Yeah. And that program is Bookworms. It's a fairly new reading program. It was developed at the University of Delaware. And they have some good data, not only out of Seaford, but out of some other districts as well.
Yeah. So and, it, and I think you're absolutely right. Sorry, Jim. I just want to sure. confirm that it's not really necessarily about what's on the page of that program always, but sometimes just even that consistency and that coherence is where some of the synergy happens. I've, I've wondered. Yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Sorry. Well, I was just going to reference uh, some of your work with reading over the last several podcasts that you've done on Extraordinary Districts, because I've been listening to that. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, what the impetus was for looking at reading and um, what districts are doing now that is moving the needle on reading, because you talk a little bit too about the state of Mississippi and how they are making great gains as a result of the efforts that they've done. So what's happening with reading and, and why is this such an important topic right now? So reading is, of course, the basis of education, right? I mean, uh, Jean Shaw said, you, you know, the first few years of school, you learn to read, and then after that, you read to learn. Um, and, and unless children learn to read well, they are really closed off from an awful lot not just their own personal ambitions and, and uh, desires to do whatever they want to do, but also from their ability to act as uh, educated citizens who really fully understand issues and can help shape uh, our polity. I think I can use that word. Mm. It's, that's a weird word, isn't it? Um, Very impressive. But I mean, we're not to get too political, but it seems to me we're at a real uh, turning point, possible turning point for the nation where we are going to dis decide whether we want a democracy or not. And uh, we've been at this turning point before in our history, and sometimes we've decided uh, for democracy and sometimes we have not. And I think we have another choice to make at this point. And if we are to be a democracy, we really need all our citizens active, engaged, voting, not just voting, but helping shape what the issues are. And to do that, in this day and age, you really need to be able to read. Um, you know, it may be in other times you didn't need to read or didn't need to read much, but really we, we need to be able to read. So reading and democracy, I think, are inextricably linked. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really, really important. And we've been in a bit of a... Mm, uh, stagnant pond of reading for a while. So one of the things that I think is important to note is we've had periods of time where we've made enormous progress. The 1970s, 1980s, every, every group of students that was being measured by the long-term NAEP was improving. African-American and Latino students were improving faster. You could see the trajectory was moving so that the gaps were narrowing and um, you know, African-American and Latino students were on track to catch up to white students. 1988, that progress stopped. Why? I do not know. Um, but it stopped and it didn't start again. There was no real progress until about 1999 
and then we had another period of progress. Again, all groups improving, but African-American and Latino students improving faster. And that stopped around 2012, mm. um, or even a little before that. And um, so we've had periods of real improvement, and then we've had periods of stagnation. We are now in a period of stagnation. So uh, the last uh, results of the main NAEP were very disappointing for every state in the country, except for Mississippi. Mississippi was the only state to show improvement and it has now, its fourth grade, uh, its fourth graders are now reading at the national level, right? So it, Mississippi was coming up from a very low level at one point and it is now at the national level. I will caution, Alabama did the same thing and then it dropped again. So uh, we should be careful before we start saying, oh, well, we should all do what Mississippi is doing. Let's, let's really figure out what Mississippi is doing and figure out if, if, if that's um, the, the place we wanna go. They're still at the national average, they're not above the national average. So you know, let's be cautious about it, but good for Mississippi, you know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it represents an enormous amount of work on the part of people. Uh, and it appears, I mean, it's, I want to be careful about making a causal statement, but they have been doing a lot of work in terms of training teachers about what reading, what early reading requires, uh, early reading instruction requires, training professors of education. You know, they've really been doing a lot of work. So let's hope that's the reason, you know, that good practice, good uh, training, has been the reason for this improvement. It's not a, and you know, let's hope it's not a blip or whatever. But um, we've been in this place before. We, we, we actually really know how to make sure all kids learn to read. We just don't do it uh, in enough places. And that's the crime, really. Um, and why we don't is a big question. And um, I think it has to do with whether we believe all kids can learn to read. Um, because if we don't believe they can, then why would we do the work involved in making sure they can? Um, if we do believe they can, well, that, then it becomes incumbent upon the adults in schools to make sure that they can. Um, but, you know, that's, that's the belief, the belief system is very powerful. And I think we've, we've allowed ourselves to believe, and, you know, that's, that's a funny, um, I don't believe it. So I don't know why I'm saying we've allowed ourselves, but um, so many people have kind of drifted into thinking, well, some kids can do it and some kids can't. Um, and by allowing ourselves to think that, we have permitted an awful lot of kids to not know how to read. Yeah. Well. So um, what, do, what role do districts play in that? Because, um, you know, I feel you said we know how to teach reading, and I agree that the knowledge base is there, but I'm not sure all teachers get that information or have that information you know, and that might be part, 
part the problem of uh, institutions of higher education uh, not not doing their roles, but uh, but how do districts that are successful make sure that everybody has the information that they need to be successful? Do they is that part of their success? Yes, I, it seems to me so. That's where the curriculum comes in. You know, having a high quality curriculum. Why we ask teachers to um, use low quality curricula is beyond me, but. There's a bit of a racket there, you know, textbook companies make a lot of money there. And, you know, they have powerful sales staff, sales staffs that, you know, are very, I'm, I'm sure are very convincing in the sales, you know, in the sales pitches. And once a district purchases a textbook series, with the associated workbooks and professional training contracts that last five years and this and that and the other thing, well, they're locked in at that point, right? And um, in fact, uh, in the podcast uh, about Seaford, I talked about how the district had just spent a lot of money on a textbook series and the new associate superintendent of curriculum and instruction, who's now the superintendent, he was like, I can't just come in and just rip that all out. They've spent a lot of time. They've spent a lot of money. This is going to take some delicate diplomacy on, you know, on my part, even though I know this, this curriculum isn't going to help particularly. Um, so, so you need districts to really pay attention and have high quality curriculum, but also the, it's also a matter of training and providing the structures and systems that allow principal that allow principals and teachers to spend the kind of time they need. I think we have spent, we as a nation have allowed ourselves, once again, we're allowing ourselves, that's not a great formulation, but um, so often we, you'll hear, in, in political conversations, we want all the money to go directly to the classroom. We don't want any other money, you know, any other money not in, immediately in the classroom is being wasted on administration. Well, teachers need time when they're not in front of children to really think about their practice, to study what kid, their students are doing, to, to learn from other teachers. They need those structures and that, those, those master schedules where they have a little bit of extra time to really dig in, the principals need those, those structures as well. They need time when they're not, you know, responsible for the fact that the French fries are running out and the bus is late and, you know, the yellow bus is late and the French fries, you know, I mean, there are so many distractions for principals. They need time. They need time where they can sit and really think about what they are doing, how they're organizing their schools, work with fellow principals, work with their assistant superintendents, um, you know, who, who can actually help them reflect on these kinds of things. All those things are money that, you know, politically is not right immediately in the classroom, but it helps make the classrooms better. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, you did. And, 
And thank you too, because I want to clarify earlier, I sort of said it doesn't matter what's on the page. And that's absolutely not true because there are differences between the curriculum. But if we were to find good curriculum, I'm glad that you're just reminding us that it, you do need to be thoughtful about what you're selecting if you are going to make a commitment and um, making sure that there, it is evidence-based, that there is research to support uh, you know, the impact that it's having, having on students. Uh, I, I know we're supposed to stick close to 30 minutes, but I have one more burning question I'd love to ask if that's okay. And and it is about like the idea of a principal pipeline. I know that Wallace Foundation has been doing some work around this. And if you're looking at that district level, I'm curious what you maybe have heard or seen so far about that principal preparation that maybe the district's involved in. Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. The Wallace Foundation has, one of the interesting things about the Wallace Foundation is they have as their kind of an internal motto, first do no harm. And I've really appreciated that. So um, my first, my first uh, impression of the Wallace Foundation was that they were a bit, uh, I don't, and I don't mean this to sound insulting, but a bit stodgy, right? A bit, um, you know, stick in the mud. They, they were so careful, so cautious, and yet we've seen plenty of foundations that do do harm because they get an idea, they go off, they spend millions of dollars and they don't actually do anything and they just leave everybody with a bad taste in their mouth and a, a feeling of, well, I guess nothing will work, right? Whereas Wallace has dug into one issue for 15 years, 20 years, I, I don't even know at this point. And they kind of latched on to the idea that school leaders were important. And this was based on a lot of research. Um, so they, you know, they never went off half cocked. They, they had a lot of research to say, school leaders are important. Okay, well, if school leaders are important, then how do we get better school leaders? And they had a theory and they tested it. And the theory was that if districts created coherent pipelines of school leaders, starting with recruitment of teacher leaders and uh, training, uh, hiring, supervising, right, placing, if they had these coherent principal pipelines, that would improve student achievement. Now that's a theory, right? That, or it was really only a hypothesis when they started. But they put a lot of money into that. They, they took six districts, large districts, and they put a lot of money into this idea. And each of those districts created more coherent pipelines of leadership. And when I say more coherent, I, I just mean they're not perfect. None of them are perfect at this point. But none of them all of them had started with this kind of random way of like hiring principals. So a principal would say they were retiring and the assistant superintendent in charge of that school would kind of go, well, I think I know, you know, so-and-so is like, he'd like to move up. He's been an assistant, super, you know, an assistant principal for a while. And he's probably pretty good. You know, it, it was not a coherent system. None of them had coherent systems. And, you know, I, I, kind of, I attended a bunch of meetings with all these districts and I heard them sort of work through, you know, we realized we really didn't have a coherent hiring system. So they all developed more coherent systems and 
Wallace did a study, uh, paid for a study by, Rand, by the Rand Corporation to see if it made a difference with student achievement. And lo and behold, and I thought it was too early. I actually thought it was too early to see on that kind of scale uh, improvements in student achievement. But lo and behold, five of the, of the six districts did show improvement in reading and math. Not big improvement, but as I say, it was really too early to see anything. And the fact that they saw some improvements was huge. So like districts should pay attention to who's coming up, who's getting ready for leadership, you know, developing leadership, not just for principalship, but leadership for all kinds of things, right? Um, there's schools and districts are such complex places. They need a lot of leadership and you can organize your leadership in a lot of different ways to permit a lot of different people to have really significant roles. And I think they have demonstrated that, but it turns out once you have better leaders, you actually have to organize, reorganize your district offices to reflect that because yeah. so often a friend of mine was a fourth grade teacher and then he went and worked in a, the, the district math office. And the way he talked about principals was, well, they, they're going to have to learn, you know, they'll, they'll come around, they have to comply with what I'm saying. And then he became a principal and he had a whole other different way of talking, <laughs> which, was, which was like the, the district needs to support me instead of telling me what to do, yeah. they need to support me, right? And that's actually what has to happen is the districts have to reorganize their central office to support principals in ways that are much more coherent and aren't about compliance, but about support, professional development, making sure that they get the opportunities to learn from other principals and other places, you know, like all the things that have to go into place to be able for principals to be able to say, your kids are doing better than mine. Yeah. What are you doing? The district has to create those systems. Yeah. Nice. Thank you so much. I'm sorry. That was a long answer. That's no, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, Karen, we asked you this the first time and maybe you have a different answer now. Um, what advice would you give your younger self um, if you were to be able to travel back in time and talk to a younger Karen Chenoweth? Oh, I think I would uh, say, if you want to be a teacher, go be a teacher. I was discouraged from being a teacher when I was in I college. You about that the first time. Did I? Is that what I said? I don't even well, no, remember I don't, what I told you. No, no, but I, I remember you mentioning that you, people had discouraged you from going into education, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I, I would have said, you know, pay no attention to that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it was ridiculous that I paid attention. On the other hand, you know, I became a reporter, which I'm very happy about. Yeah, yeah. And look well, at all the time that it's afforded you to be able to like delve exactly. into these educational issues and help us make better choices. As exactly. Help the rest of us know yeah. more about where we can have meaningful change. Well, I, I do think we're at a crossroads. We can choose much better. And I hope we do. Yeah. 
Very good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day. I know that you have got plenty on your plate. Uh, we can hardly wait for your book to arrive in our inboxes, in our little mailboxes, so we can get, dive into it and get after it. So thank you for taking a look. I think you are absolutely on the right path that if you want to have longstanding change that that will be able to lead schools to long-term improvement, you, you have to bring in that district level to be able to continue that support. So thank you for that research. Thank you. And let me know what you think. Okay, yeah. we'll do. We'll also, we'll also link to your podcast through our show notes as well. So. Oh, great. All thank right. you link so to much. the book. Link to the book through the additional. Yeah. Okay. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much and have a great day. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.